Chapter Four of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter Four. Lady Delacour's history continued. I left off with the true skill of a good story-teller at the most interesting part a duel and yet duels are so common now that they are really vulgar incidents but we think that a duel concerning ourselves must be more extraordinary than any other we hear of men being shot in duels about nothing every day so it's really a weakness in me to think so much about poor Lawless's death as Harriet Freak said to me at the time. She expected to see me show sorrow in public, but very fortunately for me she roused my pride, which was always stronger than my reason, and I behaved myself upon the occasion as became a fine lady. There were some things, however, I could hardly stand. You must know that Lawless, fool and coxcomb as he was, had some magnanimity and showed it, as some people do from whom it is least expected, on his deathbed. The last words he said were, Lady Delacour is innocent. I charge you, don't prosecute Lord Delacour. This he said to his mother, who, to complete my misery, is one of the most respectable women in England, and was most desperately fond of lawless who was an only son. She never has recovered his loss. Do you remember asking me who a tall elderly lady in mourning was, that you saw getting into her carriage one day at South Audley Street Chapel, as we passed by in our way to the park? That was Lady Lawless. I believe I didn't answer you at the time. I meet her every now and then, to me a spectre of dismay. But, as Harriet Freak said, certainly such a man as poor Lawless was a useless being in society. However, he may be regretted by a doting mother. We should see things in a philosophical light, if we can. I should not have suffered half as much as I did if he had been a man of a stronger understanding. But he was a poor, vain, weak creature, that I actually drew on and duped with my own coquetry, whilst all the time I was endeavouring only to plague Lord Delacour. I was punished enough by the airs his lordship doubly gave himself upon the strength of his valour and his judgment. They roused me completely, and I blamed him with all my might, and got an enormous party of my friends, I mean my acquaintance, to run him down full cry for having fought for me. It was absurd, it was rash, it was want of proper confidence in his wife, thus we said. Lord Delacour had his partisans, it is true, amongst whom the loudest was odious Mrs. Luttridge. I embraced the first opportunity I met with of retaliation. You must know that Mrs. Luttridge, besides being a great faro-player, was a great dabbler in politics for she was almost as fond of power as of money. She talked loud and fluently, and had, somehow or other, partly by intriguing, partly by relationship, 
connected herself with some of the leading men in Parliament. There was to be a contested election in our country. Mr. Luttridge had a good estate there next to Lord Delacour's, and being of an ancient family, and keeping a good table, the Luttridges were popular enough. At the first news of an election, out comes a flaming advertisement from Mr. Luttridge, away posted Mrs. Luttridge to begin her canvas, and away posted Lady Delacour after her, to canvas for a cousin of Harriet Freke. This was a new scene for me, but I piqued myself on the versatility of my talents, and I laid myself out in please all the squires, and, what was more difficult, all the squires' ladies in the shire. I was ambitious to have it said of me that I was the finest figure that ever appeared upon a canvas. O oh, ye shirens, how hard did I work to obtain your praise! All that the combined force of vanity and hatred could inspire, I performed, and with success. You have but little curiosity, I presume, to know how many hogsheads of port went down the throat of John Bull or how many hecatombs were offered up to the genius of English liberty. My hatred to Mrs. Luttridge was, of course, called love of my country. Lady Delacour was defied by all true patriots, and luckily a handsome legacy left me for my spirit by an uncle who died six weeks before the election, enabled us to sustain the expense of my apotheosis. The day of election came. Harriet Freke and I made our appearance on the hustings dressed in splendid party uniforms, and before us our knights and squires held two enormous panniers full of ribbons and cockades, which we distributed with a grace that won all hearts, if not all votes Mrs. Luttridge thought the panniers would carry the election, and forthwith she sent off an express for a pair of panniers twice as large as ours. I took out my pencil and drew a caricature of the ass and her panniers, wrote an epigram at the bottom of it, and the epigram and the caricature was soon in the hands of half the shire. The verses were as bad as impromptus usually are, and the drawing was not much better than the writing. But the good will of the critics supplied all my deficiencies, and never was more praise bestowed upon the pen of Burke or the pencil of Reynolds, then was lavished upon me by my honest friends. My dear Belinda, if you will not quarrel with the quality, you may have what quantity of praise you please. Mrs. Luttridge, as I hoped and expected, was beyond measure enraged at the sight of the caricature and epigram. She was, besides being a gamester and a politician, what do you think? an excellent shot. She wished, she said, to be a man, that she might be qualified to take proper notice of my conduct. The same kind friends who showed her my epigram repeated to me her observation upon it. Harriot Freke was at my elbow, and offered to take any message I might think proper to Mrs. Luttridge. I scarcely thought her in earnest till she added, that the only way left nowadays for a woman to distinguish herself was by spirit, as everything else was grown cheap and vulgar in the eyes of men. 
that she knew one of the cleverest young men in england and a man of fashion into the bargain who was just going to publish a treatise upon the propriety and necessity of female duelling and that he had demonstrated beyond a possibility of doubt that civilized society could not exist half a century longer without this necessary improvement i had prodigious deference for the masculine superiority as i thought it of harriet's understanding she was a philosopher and a fine lady i was only a fine lady i had never fired a pistol in my life and i was a little inclined to cowardice but harriet offered to bet any wager upon the steadiness of my hand and assured me that i should charm all beholders in male attire in short as my second if i would furnish her with proper credentials she swore she would undertake to furnish me with clothes and pistols and courage and everything i wanted i sat down to pen my challenge when i was writing it my hand did not tremble much not more than my lord delacour's always does the challenge was very prettily worded i believe i can repeat it lady delacour presents her compliments to mrs luttridge she is informed that mrs luttridge wishes she were a man that she might be qualified to take proper notice of lady delacour's conduct lady delacour begs leave to assure mrs luttridge that though she has the misfortune to be a woman she is willing to account for her conduct in any manner mrs luttridge may think proper and at any hour and place she may appoint lady delacour leaves the choice of the weapons to mrs luttridge mrs harriot freke who has the honour of presenting this note is lady delacour's friend upon this occasion i cannot repeat mrs luttridge's answer all i know is it was not half as neatly worded as my note but the essential part of it was that she accepted my challenge with pleasure and should do herself the honour of meeting me at six o'clock the next morning that miss honour o'grady would be her friend upon the occasion and that pistols were the weapons she preferred the place of appointment was behind an old barn about two miles from the town the hour was fixed to be early in the morning to prevent all probability of interruption in the evening harriot and i rode to the ground there were several bullets sticking in the posts of the barn this was the place where mrs luttridge had been accustomed to exercise herself in firing at a mark i own my courage oozed out a little at this sight the duke de la rochefoucauld i believe said truly that many would be cowards if they dared there seemed to me to be no physical and less moral necessity for my fighting this duel but i did not venture to reason on a point of honour with my spirited second i bravadoed to harriet most magnanimously but at night when marriott was undressing me i could not forbear giving her a hint which i thought might tend to preserve the king's peace and the peace of the county i went to the ground in the morning in good spirits and with a safe conscience harriot was in admiration of my lion-port and to do her justice she conducted herself with great coolness upon the occasion but then it may be observed that it was i who was to stand fire and not she 
i thought of poor lawless a billion of times at least as we were going to the ground and i had my presentiments and my confused notions of poetic justice but poetic justice and all other sorts of justice went clear out of my head when i saw my antagonist and her friend actually pistol in hand waiting for us they were both in men's clothes i secretly called upon the name of marriott with fervency and i looked round with more anxiety than ever bluebeard's wife or anne sister anne looked to see if anybody was coming nothing was to be seen but the grass blown by the wind no marriott to throw herself tout éploré between the combatants no peace officers to bind us over to our good behaviour no deliverance at hand and mrs luttridge by all the laws of honour as challenged was to have the first shot oh those laws of honour i was upon the point of making an apology in spite of them all when to my inexpressible joy i was relieved from the dreadful alternative of being shot through the head or of becoming a laughing-stock for life by an incident less heroic i'll grant you than opportune but you shall have the whole scene as well as i can recollect it as well for those who for the first time go into a field of battle do not as i am credibly informed and internally persuaded always find the clearness of their memories improved by the novelty of their situation mrs luttridge when we came up was leaning with a truly martial negligence against the wall of the barn with her pistol as i told you in her hand she spoke not a word but her second miss honor o'grady advanced towards us immediately and taking off her hat very manfully addressed herself to my second mistress harriot freak i presume if i mistake not harriot bowed slightly and answered miss honor o'grady i presume if i mistake not the same at your service replied miss honor i have a few words to suggest that may save a great deal of noise and bloodshed and ill-will as to noise said harriot it is a thing in which i delight therefore i beg that mayn't be spared on my account as to bloodshed i beg that may not be spared on lady delacour's account for her honour i am sure is dearer to her than her blood and as to ill-will i should be concerned to have that saved on mrs luttridge's account as we all know it is a thing in which she delights even more than i do in noise or lady delacour in blood but pray proceed miss honor o'grady you have a few words to suggest yes i would willingly observe as it is my duty to my principal said honor that one who is compelled to fire her pistol with her left hand though ever so good a shot naturally is by no means on a footing with one who has the advantage of her right hand harriot rubbed my pistol with the sleeve of her coat and i recovering my wit with my hopes of being witty with impunity answered unquestionably left-handed wisdom and left-handed courage are neither of them the very best of their kinds but we must content ourselves with them if we can have no other that if cried honor o'grady is not like most of the family of the ifs a peacemaker my lady delacour 
i was going to observe that my principal has met with an unfortunate accident in the shape of a whitlow on the forefinger of her right hand which incapacitates her from drawing a trigger but i am at your service ladies either of you that can put up with a disappointment with good humour i never during the whole course of my existence was more disposed to bear a disappointment with good humour to prove that i was incapable of bearing malice and to oblige the seconds for form's sake i agreed that we should take our ground and fire our pistols into the air mrs luttridge with her left-handed wisdom fired first and i with great magnanimity followed her example i must do my adversaries second miss honor o'grady the justice to observe that in this whole affair she conducted herself not only with a spirit but with a good nature and generosity characteristic of our nation we met enemies and parted friends life is a tragic comedy though the critics will allow of no such thing in their books it is a true representation of what passes in the world and of all lives mine has been the most grotesque mixture or alternation i should say of tragedy and comedy all this is apropos to something i have not told you yet this comic duel ended tragically for me how you say why tis clear that i was not shot through the head but it would have been better a hundred times better for me if i had i should have been spared in this life at least the torments of the damned i was not used to priming and loading my pistol was overcharged when i fired it it recoiled and i received a blow on my breast the consequences of which you have seen the pain was nothing at the moment compared with what i have since experienced but i will not complain till i cannot avoid it i had not at the time i received the blow much leisure for lamentation for i had scarcely discharged my pistol when we heard a loud shout on the other side of the barn and a crowd of townspeople country people and haymakers came pouring down the lane towards us with rakes and pitchforks in their hands an english mob is really a formidable thing marriott had mismanaged her business most strangely she had indeed spread a report of a duel a female duel but the untutored sense of propriety amongst these rustics was so shocked at the idea of a duel fought by women in men's clothes that i verily believed they would have thrown us into the river with all their hearts stupid blockheads i am convinced that they would not have been half so much scandalized if we had boxed in petticoats the want of these petticoats had nearly proved our destruction or at least our disgrace a peeress after being ducked could never have held her head above water again with any grace the mob had just closed round us crying shame 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 duck him duck him gentle or simple duck him duck him when their attention was suddenly turned towards a person who was driving up the lane a large herd of squeaking grunting pigs the person was clad in splendid regimentals and he was armed with a long pole to the end of which hung a bladder 
and his pigs were frightened, and they ran squeaking from one side of the road to the other, and the pig-driver in regimentals, in the midst of the noise, could not without difficulty make his voice heard. But at last he was understood to say that a bet of a hundred guineas depended upon his being able to keep these pigs ahead of a flock of turkeys that were following them, and he begged the mob to give him his pigs fair play. At the news of this wager, and at the sight of the gentleman turned pig-driver, the mob were in raptures, and at the sound of his voice Harriet Freak immediately exclaimed, "'Clarence Harvey, by all that's lucky!' "'Clarence Harvey,' interrupted Belinda. "'Clarence Harvey, my dear,' said Lady Delacour coolly. He can do everything, you know, even drive pigs, better than anybody else. But let me go on. Harriot Freak shouted in a stentorian voice, which actually made your pig-driver start. She explained to him in French our distress, and the cause of it. Clarence was, as I suppose you have discovered long ago, that cleverest young man in England who had written on the propriety and necessity of female duelling. He answered Harriet in French, To attempt your rescue by force would be vain, but I will do better. I will make a diversion in your favour. Immediately our hero, addressing himself to the sturdy fellow who held me in custody, exclaimed, Hussa, my boys, old England for ever! Yonder comes a Frenchman with a flock of turkeys. My pigs will beat them for a hundred guineas. Old England for ever! Hussa! As he spoke, the French officer, with whom Clarence Harvey had laid the wager, appeared at the turn of the lane, his turkeys half-flying, half-hobbling up the road before him. The Frenchman waved a red streamer over the heads of his flock. Clarence shook a pool from the top of which hung a bladder full of beans. The pigs grunted, the turkeys gobbled, arid the mob shouted, eager for the fame of old England. The crowd followed Clarence with loud acclamations. The French officer was followed with groans and hisses. So great was the confusion, and so great the seal of the patriots, that even the pleasure of ducking the female duelists was forgotten in the general enthusiasm. All eyes and all hearts were intent upon the race, and now the turkeys got foremost, and now the pigs. But when we came within sight of the horse-pond, I heard one man cry, "'Don't forget the ducking!' How I trembled! But our knight shouted to his followers, "'For the love of old England, my brave boys, keep it with my pigs and the pond. If our pigs see the water, they'll run to it, and England's undone!' The whole fury of the mob was by this speech conducted away from us. On, on, my boys, into town, to the market-place. Whoever gains the market-place first wins the day. Our general shook the rattling bladder in triumph over the heads of the swinish multitude, and we followed in perfect security in his train into the town. Men, women, and children crowded to the windows and doors. Retreat into the first place you can, whispered Clarence to us, we were close to him. Harriet Freak pushed her way into a milliner's shop. I could not get in after her, for a frightened pig turned back suddenly, and almost threw me down. Clarence Harvey caught me, 
and favoured my retreat into the shop. But poor Clarence lost his bet by his gallantry. Whilst he was manoeuvring in my favour, the turkeys got several yards ahead of the pigs, and reaching the market-place first, won the race. The French officer found great difficulty in getting safe out of the town, but Clarence represented to the mob that he was a prisoner on his parole, and that it would be unlike Englishmen to insult a prisoner. So he got off without being pelted, and they both returned in safety to the house of General Y, where they were to dine, and where they entertained a large party of officers with the account of this adventure. Mrs. Freke and I rejoiced in our escape, and we thought that the whole business was now over, but in this we were mistaken. The news of our duel, which had spread in the town, raised such an uproar as had never been heard, even at the noisiest election. Would you believe it? The fate of the election turned upon this duel. The common people, one and all, declared that they would not vote either for Mr. Luttridge or Mr. Freak, because, as how, but I need not repeat all the platitudes that they said, in short neither ribbons nor brandy could bring them to reason. With true English pig-headedness they went every man of them and polled for an independent candidate of their own choosing, whose wife, forsooth, was a proper behaved woman. The only thing I had to console me for all this was Clarence Harvey's opinion that I looked better in man's clothes than my friend Harriot Freak. Clarence was charmed with my spirit and grace, but he had not leisure at that time to attach himself seriously to me or to anything. He was then about nineteen or twenty. He was all vivacity, presumption, and paradox. He was enthusiastic in support of his opinions, but he was at the same time the most candid man in the world, for there was no set of tenets which could be called exclusively his. He adopted in liberal rotation every possible absurdity, and, to do him justice, defended each in his turn with the most ingenious arguments that could be devised and with a flow of words which charmed the ear, if not the sense. His essay on female duelling was a most extraordinary performance. It was handed about in manuscript till it was worn out. He talked of publishing it, and dedicating it to me. However, this scheme, amongst a million of others, he talked of, but never put into execution. Luckily for him, many of his follies evaporated in words. I saw but little either of him or his follies at this time. All I know about him is that after he had lost his bet of a hundred guineas as a pig-driver, by his knight-errantry in rescuing the female duelists from a mob, he wrote a very charming copy of verses upon the occasion and that he was so much provoked by the stupidity of some of his brother officers, who could not understand the verses, that he took a disgust to the army, and sold his commission. He set out upon a tour to the continent, and I returned with Harriet Freak to London, and forgot the existence of such a person as Clarence Hervey for three or four years. Unless people can be of some use, or unless they are actually present, 
let them be ever so agreeable or meritorious, we are very apt to forget them. One grows strangely selfish by living in the world. Tis a perfect cure for romantic notions of gratitude, and love, and so forth. If I had lived in the country, in an old manor-house, Clarence Harvey would have doubtless reigned paramount in my imagination as the deliverer of my life, etc. But in London one has no time for thinking of deliverers. And yet what I did with my time I cannot tell you. Tis gone, and no trace left. One day after another went, I know not how. Had I wept for every day I lost, I'm sure I should have cried my eyes out before this time. If I had enjoyed any amusement in the midst of this dissipation, it would all have been very well. But I declare to you, in confidence, I have been tired to death. Nothing can be more monotonous than the life of a hackneyed fine lady. I question whether a dray-horse or a horse in a mill would willingly exchange places with one if they could know as much of the matter as I do. You are surprised at hearing all this from me? My dear Belinda, how I envy you! You are not yet tired of everything. The world has still the gloss of novelty for you. But don't expect that can last above a season. My first winter was certainly entertaining enough. One begins with being charmed with the bustle and glare, and what the French call spectacle. This is over, I think, in six months. I can but just recollect having been amused at the theatres and the opera and the Pantheon and Ranelagh, and all those places for their own sakes. Soon, very soon, we go out to see people, not things. Then we grow tired of seeing people. Then we grow tired of being seen by people and then we go out merely because we can't stay at home. A dismal story, and a true one. Excuse me for showing you the simple truth. Well-dressed falsehood is a personage much more presentable. I am now come to an epoch in my history in which there is a dearth of extraordinary events. What shall I do? Shall I invent? I would if I could but I cannot. Then I must confess to you that during these last four years I should have died of ennui if I had not been kept alive by my hatred of Mrs. Luttridge and of my husband. I don't know which I hate most. Oh, yes, I do. I certainly hate Mrs. Luttridge the most, for a woman can always hate a woman more than she can hate a man unless she has been in love with him, which I never was with poor Lord Delacour. Yes, I certainly hate Mrs. Luttridge the most. I cannot count the number of extravagant things I have done on purpose to eclipse her. We have had rival routs, rival concerts, rival galas, rival theatres. She has cost me more than she's worth, but then I certainly have mortified her once a month at least. My hatred to Mrs. Luttridge, my dear, is the remote cause of my love for you, for it was the cause of my intimacy with your aunt Stanhope, 
Mrs. Stanhope is really a clever woman. She knows how to turn the hatred of all her friends and acquaintance to her own advantage. To serve lovers is a thankless office compared with that of serving haters. Polite haters, I mean. It may be dangerous, for aught I know, to interpose in the quarrels of those who hate their neighbors, not only with all their souls, but with all their strength. The barbarians fight it out, kiss and are friends. The quarrels which never come to blows are safer for a go-between, but even these are not to be compared to such as never come to words. Your true silent hatred is that which lasts for ever. The moment it was known that Mrs. Luttridge and I had come to the resolution never to speak to one another, your aunt Stanhope began to minister to my hatred, so that she made herself quite agreeable. She one winter gave me notice that my adversary had set her heart upon having a magnificent entertainment on a particular day. On that day I determined, of course, to have a rival gala. Mrs. Stanhope's maid had a lover, a gardener, who lived at Chelsea, and the gardener had an aloe, which was expected soon to blow. Now a plant that blows, but once in a hundred years, is worth having. The gardener intended to make a public exhibition of it, by which he expected to gain about a hundred guineas. Your aunt Stanhope's maid got it from him for me for fifty, and I had it whispered about that an aloe in full blow would stand in the middle of one of Lady Delacour's supper-tables. The difficulty was to make Mrs. Luttridge fix upon the very day we wanted, for, you know, we could not possibly put off the blowing of our aloe. Your aunt Stanhope managed the thing admirably by means of a common friend who was not a suspected person with the Luttridges. In short, my dear, I gained my point. Everybody came from Mrs. Luttridge's to me, or to my aloe. She had a prodigiously fine supper, but scarcely a soul stayed with her. They all came to see what could be seen but once in a hundred years. Now the aloe, you know, is of a cumbersome height for a supper ornament. My saloon luckily has a dome, and under the dome we placed it. Round the huge china vase in which it was planted, we placed the most beautiful, or rather the most expensive, hothouse plants we could procure. After all, the aloe was an ugly thing, but it answered my purpose. It made Mrs. Luttridge, as I am credibly informed, absolutely weep with vexation. I was excessively obliged to your aunt Stanhope, and I assured her that if ever it were in my power she might depend upon my gratitude. Pray, when you write, repeat the same thing to her, and tell her that since she has introduced Belinda Portman to me, I am a hundred times more obliged to her than ever I was before. But to proceed with my important history. I will not tire you with fighting over again all my battles in my seven years' war with Mrs. Luttridge. I believe love is more to your taste than hatred. 
therefore i will go on as fast as possible to clarence hervey's return from his travels he was much improved by them or at least i thought so for he was heard to declare that after all he had seen in france and italy lady delacour appeared to him the most charming woman of her age in europe the words of her age piqued me and i spared no pains to make him forget them a stupid man cannot readily be persuaded out of his senses what he sees he sees and neither more nor less but this the easiest thing in the world to catch hold of a man of genius you have nothing to do but to appeal from his senses to his imagination and then he sees with the eyes of his imagination and hears with the ears of his imagination and then no matter what the age beauty or wit of the charmer may be nor matter whether it be lady delacour or belinda portman i think i know clarence hervey's character enfin fond and i could lead him where i pleased but don't be alarmed my dear you know i can't lead him into matrimony you look at me and from me and you don't well know which way to look you are surprised perhaps after all that passed all that i felt and all that i still feel about poor lawless i should not be cured of coquetry so am i surprised but habit fashion the devil i believe lead us on and then lord delacour is so obstinate and jealous you can't have forgotten the polite conversation that passed one morning at breakfast between his lordship and me about clarence hervey but neither does his lordship know nor does clarence hervey suspect that my object with him is to conceal from the world what i cannot conceal from myself that i am a dying woman i am and i see you think me a strange weak inconsistent creature i was intended for something better but now it is too late a coquette i have lived and a coquette i shall die i speak frankly to you let me have the glory of leading clarence hervey about with me in public for a few months longer then i must quit the stage as to love you know with me that is out of the question all i ask or wish for is admiration lady delacour paused and leaned back on the sofa she appeared in great pain oh i'm sometimes resumed she as you see in terrible pain for two years after i gave myself that blow with a pistol i neglected the warning twings that i felt from time to time at last i was terrified marriott was the only person to whom i mentioned my fears and she was profoundly ignorant she flattered me with false hopes till alas it was in vain to doubt of the nature of my complaint then she urged me to consult a physician that i would not do i could not i never will consult a physician i would not for the universe have my situation known you stare you cannot enter into my feelings why my dear if i lose admiration what have i left would you have me live upon pity consider what a dreadful thing it must be to me 
who have no friends, no family, to be confined to a sick-room. A sick-bed, tis what I must come to at last, but not yet, not yet. I have fortitude. I should despise myself if I had no species of merit. Besides, it is still some occupation to me to act my part in public, and bustle, noise, nonsense, if they do not amuse or interest me, yet they stifle reflection. May you never know what it is to feel remorse. The idea of that poor wretch, lawless, whom I actually murdered as much as if I had shot him, haunts me whenever I am alone. It is now between eight and nine years since he died, and I have lived ever since in a constant course of dissipation. But it won't do. Conscience, conscience will be heard. Since my health has been weakened, I believe I have acquired more conscience. I really think that my stupid lord, who has neither ideas nor sensations, except when he is intoxicated, is a hundred times happier than I am. But I will spare you, Belinda. I promise that you should not have a scene, and I will keep my word. It is, however, a great relief to open my mind to one who has some feeling. Harriet Freak has none. I am convinced that she has no more feeling than this table. I have not yet told you how she has used me. You know that it was she who led or rather dragged me into that scrape with Lawless, for that I never reproached her. You know it was she who frightened me into fighting that duel with Mrs. Luttridge, for this I never reproached her. She has cost me my peace of mind, my health, my life. She knows it, and she forsakes, betrays, insults, and leaves me to die. I cannot command my temper sufficiently to be coherent when I speak of her. I cannot express in words what I feel. How could that most treacherous of beings for ten years make me believe that she was my friend. Whilst I thought she really loved me, I pardoned her all her faults, all, what a comprehensive word, all, all I forgave, and continually said, but she has a good heart. A good heart! She has no heart! She has no feeling for any living creature but herself. I always thought that she cared for no one but for me, but now I find she can throw me off as easily as she would her glove. And this, too, I suppose she calls a frolic, or, in her own vulgar language, fun. Can you believe it? What do you think she has done, my dear? She has gone over at last to odious Mrs. Luttridge. Actually, she has gone down with the Luttridges to the Shire. The independent member having taken the Chiltern Hundreds vacates his seat. A new election comes on directly. The Luttridges are to bring in Freak, not Harriet's cousin. They have cut him. But her husband, who is now to commence senator, he is to come in for the county, upon condition that Luttridge shall have Freak's borough. 
Lord Delacour, without saying one syllable, has promised his interest to this precious junto, and Lady Delacour is left a miserable cipher. My lord's motives I can clearly understand. He lost a thousand guineas to Mrs. Luttridge this winter, and this is a convenient way of paying her. Why Harriet should be so anxious to serve a husband whom she hates, bitterly hates, might surprise anybody who did not know Le Dessours Descartes as well as I do. You are but just come into the world, Belinda, the world of wickedness. I mean, my dear, or you would have heard what a piece of work there was a few years ago about Harriet Freak and this cousin of hers. Without betraying her confidence, I must tell you what is known to everybody, that she went so far that, if it had not been for me, not a soul would have visited her. She swam in the sea of folly out of her depth, the tide of fashion ebbed, and there was she left sticking knee-deep in the mud, a ridiculous, scandalous figure. I had the courage and foolish good nature to hazard myself for her, and actually dragged her to terra firma. How she has gone on since I cannot tell you precisely, because I am in the secret, but the catastrophe is public. To make her peace with her husband, she gives up her friend. Well, that I could have pardoned, if she had not been so base as to go over to Mrs. Luttridge. Mrs. Luttridge offered, I've seen the letter and Harriet's answer, to bring in Freak the husband, and to make both a county and a family peace, on condition that Harriet should give up all connection with Lady Delacour. Mrs. Luttridge knew this would provoke me beyond measure, and there is nothing she would not do to gratify her mean, malevolent passions. She has succeeded for once in her life. The blame of the duel, of course, is all thrown upon me, and, would you believe it, Harriot Freak, I am credibly informed, throws all the blame of Lawless's business on me. Nay, hints that Lawless's deathbed declaration of my innocence was very generous. Oh, the treachery, the baseness of this woman! And it was my fate to hear all this last night at the masquerade. I waited and waited and looked everywhere for Harriet. She was to be the widow Brady, I knew. At last the widow Brady made her appearance, and I accosted her with all my usual familiarity. The widow was dumb. I insisted upon knowing the cause of this sudden loss of speech. The widow took me into another apartment, unmasked, and there I beheld Mr. Freak, the husband. I was astonished, had no idea of the truth. Where is Harriot? I believe were the first words I said. Gone to the country. To the country? Yes, to the shire, with Mrs. Luttridge. Mrs. Luttridge, odious Mrs. Luttridge! I could scarcely believe my senses. But Freak, who always hated me, believing that I led his wife instead of her leading me into mischief, would have enjoyed my astonishment and my rage, 
so I concealed both with all possible presence of mind. He went on, overwhelming me with explanations and copies of letters, and declared it was at Mrs. Freak's request he did and said all this, and that he was to follow her early the next morning to the shire. I broke from him, simply wishing him a good journey, and as much family peace as his patience merited. He knows that I know his wife's history, and though she has no shame, he has some. I had the satisfaction to leave him blushing with anger, and I supported the character of the comic muse a full hour afterwards, to convince him that all their combined malice would fail to break my spirit in public. What I suffer in private is known only to my own heart. As she finished these words, Lady Delacour rose abruptly, and hummed a new opera air. Then she retired to her boudoir, saying with an air of levity to Belinda as she left the room, "'Good-bye, my dear Belinda. I leave you to ruminate sweet and bitter thoughts, to think of the last speech and confession of Lady Delacour, or what will interest you much more, the first speech and confession of Clarence Harvey.' End of chapter 4 Read by Lars Rolander